I'm your host, Michael Callahan, and wherever you might be now, this is where we go next. And Dr. Daniel Scoggin is the co-founder of Great Hearts Academies. Over 20 years ago, he started as the headmaster of a classical liberal arts academy in Tempe, Arizona. In 2004, Dan authored the original Great Hearts business plan. Great Hearts now serves 26,000 students at 42 schools in Phoenix, San Antonio, and North Texas, with immediate plans to expand into Louisiana and Florida. In addition to serving on the Great Hearts America board, Dan is the Academy's officer, overseeing school operations and improvement, as well as further brick-and-mortar expansion nationally. Dan, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you, Michael, for having me. Well, I'm glad it's a pleasure all around. One of Great Hearts Academy's defining features is its commitment to a classical education, and this is reflected in the school's mission statement, quote, to cultivate the minds and hearts of students through the pursuit of truth, goodness, and beauty, end quote. So to start with a softball, Dan, what is true, what is good, and what is beautiful? Well, Michael, you're going right to the, the heart of the matter. That's an easy question for us to get started with, but it's, it's, it's a very important one. I'm just coming off of our teacher training cycle. We had 600 new teachers start this year with Great Hearts, and we start with this issue. What is truth, goodness, and beauty, and how does it inform an education? Truth, goodness, and beauty, they're the classical triad, the classical transcendentals that go back to Plato and Aristotle, Augustine and Aquinas. They run through the whole heart of the Western tradition, and this connection between truth and goodness is the defining feature of a classical education. Truth is the telos, the purpose, the goal of the mind is to understand truth. The purpose of our moral actions is to seek, find, and realize goodness, and beauty ties it all together. You know, we live a life that seeks beauty, our personal comportment, but also our perceptions. It unites us. Our perceptions are meant to find order and beauty. And, you know, a classical education, Michael, seeks to resolve this connection between the mind and the heart, between knowing the truth and actually realizing and doing it. And this is what makes classical education, I think, such a powerful traditional way of learning is that it's not just about producing forming brilliant kids, you know, that's that's fine, but brilliant kids who have a heart for a greater good beyond themselves. And so, the connection between truth, goodness, and beauty really defines an authentic classical education. I think some of my role in this conversation is to play the avatar for people who aren't immediately familiar with what a classical education is. And I feel very comfortable playing that role because I did not have a classical education growing up. So, In many ways, I am asking these questions not only on behalf of the audience, but also myself. For someone who is unfamiliar with this particular educational pedagogy, the question of what is true, what is good, what is beautiful, they, I think like I often do, see these often as subjective questions, almost as opinions. And especially in, I feel like our increasingly divided society, whether it's politically divided, culturally divided, we're having difficulty even agreeing on what is true, what is reality. So I think to kind of dig a little bit deeper and also familiarize our audience with a classical education, when you say truth, when you say goodness, when you say beauty, it doesn't sound like you're talking about just subjective things like, oh, that movie was good or my truth, quote unquote. So in the classical sense, what are these things? Great, great question. You know, we believe truth is objective. Now, when we say that, you know, a student can seek and pursue truth, as you read in our core purpose statement there, pursue, we believe it's a Socratic journey, Michael, that students will discuss these great works, will do math and science together and the arts across a liberal arts program. And they'll wrestle with what is truth. You know, sometimes in math, you might be able to see it. You know, there are certain equations where the solution was true 10,000 years ago is true today, will be true forevermore. But when you get to ideas like justice, courage, what is friendship? What is fidelity? There are right and wrong answers to that. And there can be natural disagreement between students as they wrestle to refine their understanding more fully. But we believe, like Socrates did, that objective truth can be found, and we have to wrestle with those ideas, pursue them, 
but they're out there. There is a reality, intellectual and moral, that can be found and anchor the human person. It's not preachy. It's not monolithic. It's not something to be downloaded. It's something to be pursued with an open mind and an open heart. But truth exists, and it can be found through a a rational, earnest Socratic process. And it sounds like it's not just teachers imparting what truth is. It's teaching children how to pursue it and find it for themselves. Yeah, that's it. You know, we're not dogmatic schools. We're public, open-hearted, open-doored charter schools, which are public schools, right? So families from all different backgrounds, all different faith traditions, or in many cases, no faith tradition come to us. And they come to us because they see the academic results. And that's that's fine. Some come to us because they, they want a classical education, and perhaps they had a taste of that. The parents did themselves. But they come to Great Hearts, and they want this type of education And over time, the student will develop their moral habits. During our lower school program, we put a lot of emphasis on justice, courage, and temperance, the three traditional moral virtues. But as that young woman, that young man, that adolescent comes into the age of reason where they can seek wisdom, they can seek, what does it mean to be a human being? Who am I? That great Socratic question, you know, what am I meant to do with my life? Who am I as a human being? They have the great touchstones of the great books, these works, these perennial works that seek to understand what it means to a human being, to discuss with each other at the same time they're answering these fundamental questions for themselves. You know, who am I and what does it mean to be a human being? What is virtue? Virtue. And we should probably talk about that word. And so, it's a 13-year process at Great Hearts. It's not downloadable. As my colleague Jake Tawney says, Great Hearts reserves time for the scandalous inefficiency of conversation. <laughs> so, it's, it's meant to be messy. It's not monolithic. It's not one thing. But we believe that if you become cynical, well, who's to know what truth is? No one could know. That shuts down a fundamental process in the human soul, especially for children, that they're seeking something they can hold on to and build a life on. Yes. No, that resonates with me. You know, even as a grown adult, I feel like the last 10 some odd years, the the wider conversation taking place, what is truth? It's unknowable or everything can be deconstructed. To be frank, sometimes it just makes me despair, right? Because although, of course, we don't want to be so sure of ourselves that we can never be open to new ideas or rethinking our priors, it feels like, and perhaps maybe I'm just a little too online, but it can sometimes feel like our society is unmaking itself because it doesn't want to be too sure of anything. And I feel like, especially with children, when you're at such a impressionable age, I feel like that can be very poisonous for the mind. So it's just, it's refreshing. (laughs) And one of the reasons why I wanted to have you on is it's just, it's refreshing to hear someone so full-throatedly say, that there is truth and learning how to pursue it and love it is a virtue in and of itself. And we want to make students hungry for the search. And there could be disagreements at time, but I, I do think there are better and worse answers. You know, just to give a, a very simple example, maybe it's too simple, but students can define justice. They understand when something is unjust and when something is just. You know, there's this fairness meter, this fairness indicator in every child's heart. You know, I have young children, they, they remind me all the time what's fair and unfair. And they actually have rather objective standards when something's fair and when something's unfair. They have a sense of justice. It gets more nuanced and develop as they grow up. But there's truth in that. You know, it's unjust to cheat. That's a fundamental truth. And so, it's just to Give another person his or her due and acclaim, and what is theirs is theirs. So, this is a simple example, Michael, but these are the types of basic pursuits of truth that we want to build in students' hearts. And, you know, novels, plays, works of art, they show this objectively in characters, in the stories that show villains and heroes and heroines. So, this is the type of system of thought, classical approach that we're trying to instill in kids. You know, I have a couple of friends who have young daughters. They're both three years old and they're wonderful human beings. But I think you would agree that if not for the adults around the child, if a child is simply left to their own devices, 
they can be sources of, of beauty and wonderment themselves. But I've also seen children through really no fault of their own because morality is instilled within them sometimes do awful things. And it's only through instruction from the parent or from a nearby adult, a leader who tells them, oh, no, you shouldn't lie or you shouldn't take her toy. Where is the line between what a child innately knows to be true and what a child knows to be justice and where a child maybe not know those things? And it's the requirement of an adult to impart that truth, impart what justice is onto the child. Wow, you were, that's an excellent question. So this is where the classical tradition helps us a lot. In a sense, great heart schools are Aristotelian in nature. I think you may know the writings of Aristotle from 5th century BC Athens. He came after Plato and Socrates. We love Aristotle. And Aristotle says that the virtues are not implanted in us by nature. You know, sort of kids are kind of neutral when they're born, according to Aristotle. They're, they're neither good nor bad. They're just kind of potential, innate potential. But the moral virtues are implanted in us by habituation. So parents, teachers, loving parents and teachers, forming habits in children. And the moral virtues come first. You have to have the moral virtues of justice, courage, and temperance. Those are the three cardinal, based on the Latin word cardo, hinge virtues. And then as the child gets into the age of rationality, sometimes fifth grade, sometimes seventh grade, sometimes ninth grade, depending on the child, where their reason and logical capacity really develops, the moral virtues allow wisdom, the one intellectual virtue, to emerge. And what we found with wisdom, and this is Aristotelian too, is that the student, thinking clearly and logically, it's sort of within them and it's ready to emerge. Students use logic. And then that natural sense of justice that they developed over time Plato calls it a process of recollection. It's within them. It just needs to be pulled out. The intellectual virtues are more innate, while the moral virtues that support them are habituated from the earliest years. So I'm sorry I'm nerding out, geeking out there <laughs> a little bit, but you know, perhaps we could do a whole nother session on the virtues and the Aristotelian approach to virtue, which really has been the hallmark of how classical education works. Oh, that would be lovely. And, you know, honestly, I wouldn't have invited you on if I didn't expect you to nerd out about classical education at least a little bit. <laughs> now, my first exposure to Great Hearts Academies was via an article in City Journal all the way back in 2019. It starts with this, quote, the hallways of its elementary schools are not lined with pennants from flagship universities and colleges like Harvard, Yale, and Princeton, but with paintings by artists whom even students at those prestigious universities may graduate without encountering, such as Vermeer, Botticelli, and Titian. Great Hearts middle school students take three years of Latin, write lyric odes to Grecian urns, and read Herodotus and Plutarch. High school students learn geometry directly from Euclid's elements, become adept painters, and by graduation have read more than 200 works of literature, including 100 poems, and performed in 25 concerts and plays, including at least two full Shakespearean productions, end quote. And as I was reading through stories of high schoolers debating Aquinas at the lunch table or taking part in an Iliadathon, quote, an overnight party where students take turns declaiming the entire Iliad, end quote, all I could think about personally was how it seemed that someone had taken the movie Dead Poets Society and turned it into an entire school. What was your inciting incident that got you passionate about a classical educational approach? What was your first exposure to it? And then importantly, what made you so passionate about it that you went from not just being a believer in its tenets and its usefulness, but an evangelizer? I think, Michael, you and I were talking a little bit earlier where you had not received a classical education in, in your elementary or perhaps secondary education as well. Not, neither did I. You know, I I went on and got a PhD in English literature from the Claremont Colleges and, you know, it was a, a humanist, you know, loved literature, but did not have exposure to the curriculum that you just outlined that all of our students receive. Came back and worked in the mid-1990s at one of the first charter schools, a classical charter school that had instantiated the curriculum we just talked about, you know, really bringing it from a network of Christian private schools and making it public facing, taking out theological elements, but keeping the core, much of the core. 
And I just was blown away by the impact this curriculum could have on teenagers. We were a middle school, high school then, and just, man, I had taught at the college level, coached basketball at the college level, and that was fun. But the impact, the change, the moral and intellectual just kind of renaissance or transformation that was taking place with these kids just hooked me. And so since then, I've dedicated my career and the founding of Great Hearts, you know, my co-founder, Jay Heiler, our CEO, he and I got together and started to plan this out that, you know, there's a moral imperative to get this education out to as many kids as possible. And I would just say that that curriculum and program and the culture, families long for it today, Michael. They are hungry for classical education because I think they're just sick and tired. Many families are of, you know, being sold a bill of goods that's just outcome or downloading information to kids. And it's not having lasting impact on their children. They're, they're hungry for, for virtue, for well-rounded children, for kids that are hungry for the good. And so that's why classical education is blowing up today. You know, we should talk about that. You know, what's going on across the country, at least in the United States, uh, with classical education. And one last thing I'll say here, great arts isn't that creative. Well, we're creative. You know, we're, we're working hard to get this to more and more kids, this form of education. But we are just actually turning the clock back to a form of education that was the standard that was the hallmark of what a, a child and an emerging young man or woman should receive. And that hallmark was lost, layered over by progressive education. And so we're, we're restoring a way of learning that was lost and updating it, updating it for the 21st century. We're called to live in our time and to redeem the time. And that's what Great Hearts is trying to do. And I want to talk with you about the resurgence and the growing popularity of a classical education with you in just a moment. But Before we get there, I want to talk a little bit about the founding of Great Hearts. In 2003, Arizona only had a single classical charter school. And then you, along with Jay Heiler, who you mentioned, Bob Mulhern, and a group of teachers and parents decided to open another one, Veritas Prep, with the aim to build a larger network, which we have today. So I want to ask you the same question I ask every founder I've had on this show. You know, starting something new whether that's a for-profit business or a non-profit charter, is very, very hard. It's much easier to join something once it's already up and running, You know, once it's proven that it won't fail out of the gate, because most new things fail. I've spoken with fellow educational entrepreneurs, a founder of a Montessori school. I've spoken with folks who've started a rocket company, a car company, and, and you know, like these are brutal undertakings. Because again, just speaking strictly about, let's say, restaurants, 80% of restaurants fail. So what was happening in your life at that time and in the educational space in general that prompted you and others to take the leap to start your own school rather than just continue to be a fan of it? Gosh, looking back, we were probably a little crazy. (laughs) (laughs) That seems to be a binding thread. (laughs) (laughs) Probably naively didn't understand all the risks. And I look back and there's just so many providential things, you know, the right people, Bob Mulhern, Reed Porter, an early donor, the Walton Family Foundation, which came to us when we had just one school and said, hey, this is pretty good. You should write a business plan and supported us, you know, in that business planning process. That was 2002. So originally we thought, well, we'll do five or six upper school prep schools around Phoenix, you know, looking for church spaces, church lease spaces or adaptive reuse spaces. And the critics then, including many critics within the first school, you know, parents, oh, you'll never be able to do that. You won't be able to find the teachers. There's not enough students out there that want this niche type of education. It's not niche. But that was just fundamentally proved wrong. You know, we had so many teacher applicants that wanted to work in these schools, parents across the metro Phoenix area. That's where we got started, Michael. The waitlist grew. The more we opened schools, the waitlist got even longer, the collective waitlist. You look back and we probably weren't that smart. There is some luck. Some things broke our way where we got, you know, some properties at real estate downturns. We bought an old grocery store and converted it into a school. Food for the mind. <laughs> Food for the mind. <laughs> the meat section became the humane letters classes. Ah. 
And we bought an old slot machine factory and converted that into a school. We got properties pennies on the dollar during the 2008-2009 real estate downturn, the the mortgage bust. So, you know, just a lot of things broke our way. And and then we got a brand. Once you build some trust with families, the best mechanism that's driven great hearts is moms talking to moms, moms talking to dads, dads talking to to each other about where you're going to send your kid, right? That's the conversation every family has with other parents. And we got into that conversation at the right time and started to be able to build a a desirable product that people wanted and was backed up with the results. Yeah. On the appeal of great hearts to parents, you've said, quote, I think the more the modern education systems and offerings point to test scores and simplistic utilitarian thinking, the more wise families sense they are being sold a lesser reality. We are realizing that the best hedge against the vicissitudes of fortune will always be the permanent clear thinking, wisdom, and character, which a classical education is ideally structured to inculcate as a foundation for lifelong learning. In every age of uncertainty, we should double down on the enduring ends of a classical education, the ability to deliberate carefully, see multiple sides of an issue, and exercise sound and decisive judgment. We sometimes call this critical thinking, but the ancients called it wisdom, end quote. And you know, not to flatter you too much, Dan, but I think this is rather beautifully articulated. And I think it speaks to the decades of focus that you've had in this space. But I imagine that many, perhaps even most of the tens of thousands of parents who enter the lottery each year to get their children into a great heart school, I imagine that perhaps like me, they don't usually come from a classical education background. So in your experience, speaking with these parents, you know, who don't preemptively have the appreciation of the education, what are some of the reasons they're choosing Great Hearts for their kids? Yeah, you know, a lot of times parents will choose Great Hearts not for that lofty vision. Some will, you know, some will have exposure to a classical education, but, you know, Michael, that's not the majority because, like I said, this education was largely lost in the last several generations, which include the the educational experience of our parents. So a lot of times, you know, they are looking at our test scores and college-bound results, great. A lot of times they're looking at the sort of safety that Great Hearts offers. You know, the kids wear uniforms, the the male teachers wear ties, smaller classes, a safer environment than what they might perceive is available to them in a, a large traditional district school or system. And just, you know, the moral safety that Great Hearts offers, you know, we could talk about our approach to culture and no pop culture and a screen-free environment, which is so critical for kids. But the big story is that we ultimately convert the parents over time through their children. All of a sudden, their second graders coming home and talking about something they learned in school, something in science, a work of literature. We hear again and again from parents, wow, our dinner table conversations have changed. What's going on with my child? They want to read. They love school. There's a sense of order joy that they're bringing home. And then just one example that every year it happens, the moms and dads come to the winter music concert, the first concert, and they see their child, a kindergartner, a first or second grader, up there singing classical music, appreciating Vivaldi, performing with confidence, with joy, with a uniform on, with their peers, with power and force of expression, and the parents are hooked. So we convert the parents to classical education through how their student is blossoming. Different kids, and this is my perspective, and of course you might have a different one here, but I wanted to get your view on it. Different kids can learn at different rates. You said earlier, rationality for some children is achieved in fifth grade, sometimes seventh, sometimes ninth. Even when it comes to other subjects, right? Like for me as a child, like I glommed on very quickly to basically anything liberal arts related, like history, English, literature. I could soak it up like a sponge and it was so easy. The brain blood barrier for me is just like it just absorbed right into my brain. (laughs) However, though, when it came to anything like science or math related, if I got a C plus in one of those classes, I considered it a win because it just like my brain struggled to really adapt it, understand it. So, In terms of the classical educational approach, in terms of the Great Hearts approach, how do your schools cater to, account for, 
the different ways that children learn, the different speeds at which they learn? How do you tailor your curriculum to accommodate children who grow at different rates, whether it's when they achieve rationality, maybe some struggle with math, others with English? I I know how the average public school does it, but how does Great Hearts do it? That's a great question because part of being a great teacher in a great school is being a student of the student. Who are they? Where are they going? What are their capacities? How do we stretch them? One thing I would say, because you were talking, Michael, about your experience, you know, being more inclined to the liberal arts or humanities than maybe the other arts or sciences, I do think we really try to inform students and inculcate them that they can do all of these things. There's something in the human heart, every human heart that longs to do math. You know, it may sound nerdy, but it's true. There's something in the human heart, every human heart that longs to sing and understand natural reality through the scientific method. Every student has that. So, we don't pigeonhole kids and say, well, obviously, this is easier for you. So, that must mean that this is your propensity, your track. We want to develop thinkers that think across all the liberal arts. And the curriculum from kindergarten on is designed that way. Some kids are shy, right? There's introverts. I believe there are introverts. I think I'm an introvert. (laughs) You know, I, I know myself. But Every student is called to speak, and it's harder for some. It's an act of will to get into that conversation, and we have to provide scaffolding at times for kids to come in, and teachers need to do that to come into the conversation. But like other schools, and actually I think we do it really well, we provide lots of interventions and academic supports for kids who are struggling all the way from the earliest grades. We have a full intervention program. We pull kids out, give them the support they need if they're struggling with reading, writing, math, then interject them right back into the program with additional supports. We have two teachers in every one of our lower school classrooms. One teacher's teaching, the other teacher's is coaching and supporting kids individually the whole time. Now, one thing you raised are kids who are thriving, who are ready to go faster. Absolutely. Our classrooms are built for that. Teachers are giving kids extra materials who want it. But I would say that the curriculum is so challenging across all of the subjects and the classrooms are taught Socratically. So we do find that we don't get that complaint that often. (laughs) You know, we find accelerated students, to use that phrase, I don't know if that's the right phrase, but they find a place in Great Hearts where they're happy and there's enough being pulled on them across the curriculum, being asked of them across the curriculum where they're challenged. And, you know, just as an example, Michael, every student at Great Hearts goes through two years of calculus before they graduate, every kid. And if they get a good algebraic program in middle school, they can all get there. So we don't want to track kids. You're just a STEM kid. You're just a humanities kid. We want to stretch them and pull them across all these ways of knowing and being, and that'll keep them challenged and well-rounded as they graduate. Two years of calculus, that is heartening to hear, especially in an age where it feels like even something simpler like algebra is being stripped out of schools in the name of uh, educational equity. So one of your earlier points, Dan, it feels like the traditional view on children and their skills is that, you know, you're just good at math or you're just good at English. That's your talent. And if you struggle in other areas, that's okay. We can't be gifted in everything. But it sounds to me like your view is, is if a child isn't excelling within all of these fields, it's not a failure of the child, it's a failure of the adult teaching that child. I think that's right, you know, because we know every child can receive these things and learn and grow. You know, one of the thinkers we admire, the late Mortimer Adler, he was one of the great advocates in the uh, the last century, the, the latter half of the last century for democratizing classical education, bringing the liberal arts to all kids. And he said the best education for the best is the best education for all. All children are human, so they should all receive a human education. And, you know, he also says, he has this wonderful analogy of every kid should get rich cream, not skim milk. You know, some kids should not get rich cream, then others get skim milk because every kid deserves rich cream. That said, there's different capacities. You know, one student in this subject can maybe take half a gallon of rich cream. The other student may get a quart, but they're all going to be offered the rich cream and their talents and work ethic and our, hopefully our humble ability to support them will give them as much of that offering as possible. In a talk 
at the National Symposium for Classical Education earlier this year, you said, quote, 30, 40 years ago, only a five-figure number of students in this country were receiving a classical education. We are fast approaching that number to be a seven-figure enumeration of young men and women receiving classical education. And it's within the realm of possibility that in the next generation or two, classical education may again be the standard of what constitutes an American education, end quote. And the term classical education, the idea of classical education, it's been around for centuries in the West. Why was the number of children receiving such an education per year so low only one to two generations ago when the history of this education is so deep? And why, in your view, is it closing in on a million children today? Because while Great Hearts is playing a pivotal role in this space, it educates about 26,000 students per academic year. That's only a small piece of a high six-figure number. So beyond just what's happening with Great Hearts, what do you believe is driving the larger movement, this resurgence of interest in and application of classical pedagogy? And by the way, next year, Great Hearts will be up to 30,000 kids. So we're really excited about that. But you're right, it's a, it's a fraction of the overall movement. You know, we have so many fellow sisters and brothers in this work. And, and by the way, the biggest portion of those receiving one form of classical education or another is homeschool families, right? That's a thriving movement. But I think classical education was lost because across the 19th century, the research shows in the rise of progressive education, well, what is that? But really a focus on utilitarianism. Kids need to learn certain things, hard skills to get into the workforce. You know, a lot of public schools were actually designed just to get kids off the streets. <laughs> there was not universal public education for much of the 19th century. So schools became factories of giving kids basic skills. Totally understandable, right? Let's prepare a, a literate workforce. But that's, that's how classical education got lost because of outcome thinking. And it got down to, we think, about 30,000 kids in the 1990s, mostly kind of elite private schools that still had some form of classical education. There was good nodes here and there, but behind the walls of a lofty tuition price point. But over the last 20 to 30 years, there's been this absolute classical education renaissance because I think families are longing for a way to, to restore virtue. But I also think families realize that it's deeper than just giving kids a static set of skills. Who knows what a man or a woman's going to need in 2035 to thrive? But we do know that we need to teach them how to think, to be philosophical, to put first principles first. So classical education, I think, is very much in demand because it's actually more flexible because it's a broad human form of education. I think families want that. Wise families, I think, realize the development of the human being fully to think clearly, to use wisdom as that hallmark is going to best prepare their kid for an unknown future. Who knows what will be asked of them? Who knows what pain and struggle they'll have to go through? Who knows what the economy is going to look like? But a classical education informing the whole person, well-rounded education built on first principles and clear thinking is going to be the best setup for them. Why, in your view, do you think that classical education came to be seen as being apart from or at odds with the kind of metric-based approach that became popular? Because when Veritas Prep finished its first school year, the test scores were some of the highest in the state to the point where the demand for enrollment at Veritas the following year, the demand exceeded the supply because of the results that children were getting on statewide tests. So just from my perspective, it doesn't seem like a classical education deprives children of good standardized test scores. How did this approach come to be seen as incompatible with that metric-obsessed testing-based approach. It seems like they're not incompatible. It seems like you can have both. So how did these two things come to be seen as at odds with one another? Well, I think it's a bit of a false dichotomy. Good schools care about those results. You know, they're secondary and tertiary, not first. Great Hearts does really well on standardized test scores, but it's a byproduct of the rigorous, well-rounded education that teaches kids how to think clearly, logically, write well, solve problems well. And then it doesn't put standards or scantrons as the first point. Provide a good education and all things will follow. 
this last testing year, Great Hearts Arizona, you know, we have 16,000 kids in our Arizona network. We have, you know, obviously students, over 10,000 students in Texas, other states as well coming online. But Arizona had the highest test scores in the state of any organization, public or charter. Out of 1,300 public schools, Great Hearts Archway Lincoln, led by Dr. Toyan Atlagabe, had the highest test scores in the entire entire state, school number one. But when you go to her school, it's a classical culture. It's the art on the walls. It's kids with hands raised discussing Socratically. And then the test scores and that culture of integrity and rigor, the test is just a follow through. I do think parents want something more. I think they want the test scores too, right? (laughs) But I think they want first things first over time, especially as they see their child mature because You know, Theodore Roosevelt said that to educate a man's mind, but not his morals, is to produce a menace to society. And I think parents are realizing some prep schools, private prep schools, for instance, or honors programs turn out these really bright kids, you know, that can kick butt on the SAT and ACT, that go on to college and are miserable. And there's even no guarantee in college they're going to develop or grow. So I think parents are seeing these stories of a lack of human flourishing going on in the high-powered kind of prep school, college admissions, college completion nexus, and are just realizing, I'm not sure my kid is going to be happy. And I think even some parents, frankly, these days are wondering if they need to send their kid to college. What does college offer? What does higher ed offer? academically or in terms of, you know, is it a place where you can really make sure your kid gets a good dose of moral relativism and kind of an immoral social environment? Excuse my opinion there, but, you know, what are we trying to do with these human beings? Yes, I think it's understandable that someone who founded and, you know, is leading a school with a very specific pedagogical approach would be passionate about that approach and and want as many people as possible to embrace it. So, There are so many different approaches to childhood education. I'm sure many of our listeners are familiar with them, whether it's Waldorf, Montessori, a classical education, traditional education, you know, and each parent is going to go through a journey to figure out what is right for their child and people have different tastes. But I imagine people listening to this episode, even if they don't personally feel like a classical education is the path they want to take their child down, I imagine if they're listening to us talking, they're listening to you talking, They can sense and hear your excitement. They can read more about the results, about the ways that children have become more passionate about the pursuit of education as a result of being taught at a Great Hearts school. So how do you choose which states and cities to go into, right? You have uh, 24 schools in Arizona, 16 in Texas. There's one opening in Baton Rouge, Louisiana this fall, and another in Jacksonville, Florida in 2024. How do you decide when and where to open schools? And importantly, I came across the story of what happened in in Nashville when Great Hearts petitioned to open there. As an outsider, right? This is, I guess, a two-part question. How do you choose where to go? And help me understand why a school like Great Hearts would be rejected if they were trying to open somewhere. Because again, parents and adults might have understandable differences as to what might be the best educational path for their kid. But outright rejection feels like a bridge too far, especially, I think, to anyone listening to this conversation. So walk me through that as well. Michael, you do your research, brother. Going back to the Nashville incident. Sounds like a, sounds like a novel. <laughs> the Nashville incident. Yeah. It's a murder <laughs> mystery. Yeah, that's right. We, we had applied for a charter there, were approved, and then the school district didn't want us to come. Sometimes there's a lack of competition that's offered. But yeah, I think, you know, starting in Arizona was brilliant. Arizona is very much a, an education choice state that really validates parents as the the primary decision makers for where their child should go. Obviously, I'm a big proponent of that. Moms and dads have the ultimate moral responsibility to decide what's best for their child and choose wisely. And sometimes that's great heart. Sometimes it's a traditional district school, sometimes private school, sometimes homeschool. They need to make that decision and own it. And that concurrence between the home and the school is so much richer, I think, when there's a a moment of choice instead of just assignment. But Arizona and Texas, Louisiana and Florida, the the four great hearts states now, we're actually looking at others 
across the country, there's a, an approach that we have where we really look at a, a couple of things. We call them the P's. We look at population. Is that state growing? Is that Are those cities growing? Are there lots of K-12 kiddos that we can access? We look at politics. Is it a school choice state? Is there a secure charter school law? Does it look like that law will stay in place for the foreseeable future? You know, one thing that we look at is philanthropy. We're a nonprofit organization at all levels, every level. We are, once a school's open, it receives state funding and we're self-sustainable. But to come into a, a place, a city, a state, we need friends for the startup costs to get Great Hearts open. So we're doing a national analysis all the time. We have Dr. Helen Baxendale on our team. We call it the Baxometer. I think there's 42 states with charter laws. There's sort of a top 10 charter states based on some of the factors I was just listing. And there's also another factor too, Michael. There's the ESAs, vouchers, educational savings accounts, empowerment scholarships. So there's a whole other layer of school choice that Great Hearts is analyzing, where parents have even another layer of choice where you can do private classical schools or private Christian classical schools. Great Hearts is starting two of those this year in the Phoenix metro area. So it's a fascinating national landscape. I would say, generally speaking, this is very general, but the South, all the way across the country, excluding California, the I-10 from Arizona to Jacksonville, <laughs> is really where I think a lot of the opportunities lie. A lot of the coastal states, the northern states, school choice has been on decline. But in the vibrant southern states where there's economic growth, and I would consider the Southwest Southern states, Texas, educational freedom is on the rise. Yeah. So this gets to a greater point, a greater conversation around how contentious a lot of topics that I wish we lived in a reality were not contentious. A 2022 Gallup poll found that only 28% of Americans have, quote, a great deal, end quote, of confidence in public schools. That's down from a high of 62% in 1975. And every year since 1987, it's been below 50%. So what, in your view, is causing this overwhelming level of dissatisfaction and distrust among adults in regards to public schools? There's a complex history there that's probably beyond my knowledge of all the reasons for that. But, you know, just in recent history, very recent history, we do know that COVID was a dramatic shift, right? Parents during the, the online debacle of, you know, disturbing kids digitally and remotely, parents saw actually what their kids were studying and the type of instruction they were getting on screens every day or lack thereof. And I think that kind of pulled the veil back and parent choice took a major leap forward. Now, there are, you know, there are great teachers and well-intended teachers and leaders in traditional district schools. But I think there's just a sense that there's not a coherent vision for what education is. You know, the shopping mall approach to education, choose your own path, students that can kind of opt out of, of a coherent education and just choose a, a lesser path that I think parents want something more. And I think freedom, you know, Americans love freedom. They love choice. And I think that applies to education now instead of just the district-assigned enrollment down the street. Parents still like neighborhood schools, as you know. I mean, they like things that are close and community-based. And so that is what charter schools can offer, too. Charter schools can go into a community and place a school as an alternative in an alternative proximity to families. So there's a big shift going on in our country right now. Not only classical education, as we were talking about, but school choice. And some states are going all in on that, and some states are entrenching and going the teacher union route of, you know, only the large district uniform government school will be offered. I've spoken at length with multiple guests about the increased political polarization in America and its effects on the country at large. You know, it seems like every major issue these days, even defining a shared reality, splits along partisan lines. And that Gallup poll I referenced about Americans' confidence in public schools is no exception. While overall confidence is at 28%, Republicans are only half that at 14%. A whopping 50% of Republicans have very little or no confidence in public schools. 
Now, Democrats' confidence in public schools is a little higher, 43%, just over three times that of Republicans, but neither number, neither 43% or 14% or the overall number of 28%, none of these numbers are something to brag about. But that is a fairly significant difference, 43 versus 14. Great Hearts is a public charter school. Is there any way out in your view of this political divide when it comes purely to the field of public education? Because I think anyone listening to the states you're rattling off, which are more friendly, let's say, to Great Hearts, they tend to trend more red. Whereas it seems like states that might be less for or less in favor of school choice, those tend to trend blue. In your view, is there any way out of this conflict? And why has it become so politicized? Because, you know, I live in L.A., Most of my friends lean left. I think that's understandable in a city like Los Angeles. But to a man, to a woman, all of them are passionate about the best education for their children. And I think if I were to tell any of them, and I've told some of them actually about Great Hearts, their eyes light up, right? So if you talk to individual parents, regardless of their political background, it seems like they're all aligned. But when we have these national conversations or when you talk to legislators, at different states, it tends to really splinter along political ideology. So is there a way out of this? So an education like a Great Hearts education or any kind of education is no longer political, but merely a matter of preference. One thing I would really emphasize is that Great Hearts is not political. There are certain states that may have a political approach that makes it easier for Great Hearts to open a school, but we're adamantly not a political organization. You know, we have teachers, families from all different places on the the great American conversation, <laughs> the great American spectrum of, of affiliation. I look back, Michael, and I kind of long for the Obama administration years in which charter schools were esteemed by both, you know, the right and the left. Remember those years? Yeah. Barney Duncan. And so we miss those times, but is there a way out? I think it's through the kids. We are in such a soundbite digitized social media culture where it's just about who can shout the loudest and the liberal approach of listening before you speak has been eroded. And I think this is what classical education can offer. The liberal arts, the word liberal comes from the Latin word liberalis, which means the free arts. Actually, this is the type of education that's meant for a free people because they actually can converse and solve issues. Aristotle is reputed to have said that the sign of a gentlewoman or a gentleman is to be able to entertain another person's idea without accepting it. But what is your idea? What are you saying? How do I fully get inside that idea before I accept it or reject it? And we need to teach people how to talk to one another again. Naively, I think this is what classical education does best. It teaches kids to actually listen to one another. And they they differ on very important topics, and they're going to discuss texts and come up with different responses. But as long as it's textually based and seeks objective truth, we're all for it. And so, our culture is an absolute crisis of dissonance and lack of listening. And we hope this next generation can do a lot better than us. And I I do think the social media crisis for children and teenagers over the last 15 years has been a, a big problem. Sometimes I get rather depressed about whether we can get ourselves out of this situation. Yeah, the idea of the answer being coming through the children you're educating. I think at first blush, for anyone who who hasn't really kind of done a deep dive on some of the children testimonials coming out of Great Hearts might think that your answer almost sounds a bit rote. But I will say in, in your defense, like I was reading some testimonials from kids who've studied there or are studying there. And there's this one quote, this is from several years ago, it was a Chandler prep student, a senior, when asked about what justice was, they said, quote, I've been studying that for four years, and I still can't give better than an F grade answer. Do you mean divine justice, natural justice, human justice? This is a very American answer, but perhaps justice is doing what one desires, but acting in accordance with virtue, end quote. And I know that there are smart children and inquisitive children within all schools, in all states. So this is not a blanket statement. To hear that kind of answer, that kind of meditative answer on what justice is and what kind of justice one is talking about, I think that one would be much more hard-pressed to find that from a child going to a traditional school. And I think it speaks to the fact that Great Hearts is inculcating a specific type of truth-seeking in its children 
which will hopefully make them into adults, like you said, who can kind of solve this crisis from the ground up. I sure hope so. And this issue of justice, we don't have to start afresh. We have the wisdom of the ages, these great foremothers and forefathers who wrestled with these issues that we expose our students to. And so they can use the wisdom of the ages to make relevant, practical, first principle-based decisions for themselves here in the 21st century. And I'm hopeful, I'm prayerful that there's going to be a turning, that people start listening to one another and some of the extremism that's sort of baked into our culture can turn. So, I think we have to remain hopeful. It's super hard. You know, what an education is, is really kind of the front lines of how we're going to decide this as a country. Unfortunately, as you know, classical education sometimes gets pegged as sort of a Republican project. It's just not. It's conservative. I don't mean conservative in a political sense. It conserves tradition of free men and women. That goes back to ancient times, was wonderfully interwoven into the American founding documents. I love Martin Luther King. If you read Letters from a Birmingham Jail, one of the most important texts in the West, and one of the texts that our children read and study in Humane Letters, our seminars, you know, who does Martin Luther King appeal to, to reassert the innate value of every human being and the beauty of the civil restoration that he wanted. And he refers to Plato and Aristotle. He goes back to the natural law tradition of Aquinas. Every human being is worthy to be free, is beyond value in who they are. And we need to listen to each one. They're not little factotums. They're not little computers. They're not little political units. They're not consumers. They're human. And I think there's a chance to return to the human and de-digitize the way we're approaching human beings today. Yes, it really does speak to the absurdity of the time in which we live. I feel like if tomorrow morning we woke up and for whatever reason, turkey sandwiches were designated as Republican sandwiches and roast beef sandwiches were Democrat sandwiches, we'd be like, what are you talking about? A sandwich is a sandwich. A sandwich can't be political. And you're like, well, sorry, man, if I see you eating a turkey sandwich, we're not friends anymore. I think we'd all recognize how ridiculous that is. And yet that very thing is playing out in our society over and over and over again. I mean, it's one thing like, look, regardless of educational approach, if you had a teacher in a classroom spouting off Republican talking points or Democratic talking points, then you could say, yeah, OK, the classroom is political. But when it comes to just actual pedagogical approaches, again, Montessori, Waldorf, classical, traditional, et cetera, et cetera, those in and of themselves are innately non-political it really does break my heart because I've had the pleasure of speaking with several leaders in education on this show. And it, it just really breaks my heart to contrast the passion that I know folks like you have about wanting to affect as many children's lives as you possibly can because you are so passionate about this subject. It pains me to see how that is then by sometimes bad actors, sometimes people who are just simply misinformed or misguided then take that passion and filter it through a political lens uh, that makes an apolitical topic divisive. I don't really have a larger question there, but I just had to lament the day in which we live. I love what you're saying there, and I, I agree. And, you know, we have to start listening to one another. This may sound naive, and I guess I am naive, but, you know, relentless goodwill, relentless goodwill. That has to be the order of the day and expect the best and listen and I think with our schools and other schools like ours that are growing out there, serve all kids, you know, de-niche anything. I mean, we want diverse schools, kids from all backgrounds coming to our doors. Our schools in Arizona and Texas, where we have our larger footprints, are increasingly diverse. We serve a majority of Hispanic students in our Texas schools. We're serving increasingly constituents from low-income communities. Uh, increasing numbers of special needs kids. We love that. We love that. That's part of what we are. This is not something for just a certain type of community in a certain type of suburb. That is missing the whole point of restoring virtue and listening and thoughtfulness into American culture. I used to volunteer with a nonprofit organization based out of Los Angeles called the Young Storytellers Foundation. It took people in the film industry and paired them up. They did this for elementary, middle school, and high school students. I worked exclusively in the elementary space. 
but it paired people in the film industry, such as myself, with children at underserved schools. And over the course of an eight-week period, one hour a week, 10 adults would guide 10 kids at each of these schools through writing their first five-page screenplay. And it was a fantastic experience. It was through a combination of games and interactive lessons. We would guide these kids through writing their first scripts. And what I learned over my six years there is for a lot of these kids, this was the first time that they ever did something creative that was one, fully their own, and two, was not, you know, not homework. It was something that they wanted to do. It was something that was not going to be graded. There were no wrong answers. As long as there were no curse words or violence, they could write about literally anything they wanted. And the only thing we were there for was to offer assistance if they needed it, to kind of guide them in the right direction. Because, you know, kids don't know how to write screenplays out of the gate. But one of the things that stuck with me, I don't remember most of the lessons that I taught, but I remember the reactions of the children. I remember their faces. I remember the things they said to me when our eight weeks would wrap up. I even get emotional thinking about it now because I could tell the impact that even our eight hours over eight weeks would have with them. And I felt like they were starved for that kind of opportunity, that kind of attention. And so I remember their stories. I remember the 10, 11, 12-year-olds and how excited they would get. Has there been a moment with a kid, either a before and after moment where you saw them in, let's say, freshman year or first grade and then fifth or freshman and then senior or, or just a moment in time or something that a child said to you? or an experience you witnessed them have that really stuck with you, that made an impact on you in a way that told you in your soul, this is what I was meant to be doing. This is my purpose. By the way, Michael, that sense of joy that you inspired in, in those screenplay writers, you're a Greenhearts teacher. So after this podcast, career, <laughs> I hope you come and, and teach our seminars or, or lead a school. So, oh, well, thank you, Dan. You know, career number three or four. <laughs> but I taught one of the classes I was blessed enough to be able to teach at Great Hearts is that Humane Letters seminar. It's that two hour Socratic seminar that begins the day for our high school scholars. And one of the classes that I really enjoyed the most was the 10th grade class because of the novels we'd read. Crime and Punishment, Pride and Prejudice, A Tale of Two Cities. And I remember a number of seminars that we would have on Crime and Punishment. It's a challenging text. As you remember in that book, Raskolnikov, the main character, kills the pawnbroker. You know, he's really a troubled soul. It's very disturbing. And then the rest of the book is kind of Dostoevsky wrestling with this question of, is Raskolnikov redeemable? Can he find peace? What what needs to happen in his soul for him to achieve peace if he can? And just to see these 10th graders, I can remember very distinctly the class, how students reacted to the murder, found it horrific, but then hoping for Raskolnikov's redemption as Dostoevsky unfolded that. And just to see their souls of these 15-year-olds wrestling with this complex text about the very nature of, of sin and redemption. It's just, it's unbelievable, you know, and the conversation would go on for 90 minutes to two hours where I, I didn't have to interject at all. And they were using the book, textual evidence, their passion, their listening to one another. They were collectively solving what this text was saying about what it means to be a human being. And yeah, it's just one example, but some of those students who are in that 10th grade seminar, like Gerilyn Olson, who was in that 10th grade seminar many years ago. Now is Leeds Greathearts, whole talent division. She's a senior executive across all of our talent, professional development, recruiting, and HR functions. To see these, these men and women, there's other examples like that, grow into senior leadership or headmasters or executives at Greathearts. They want the same things for kids across the country. It's, it's life-changing, man. It's just these schools and what goes on in them. And when you expect these things of teenagers and they rise fully to the challenge. And they're better than us, Michael. They're better than us. These seniors who graduate are beyond us. And it gives me a lot of hope that what I was as an 18-year-old is, you know, these men and women, these graduates are like 5X, <laughs> anything that I could have done or achieved because of what I had received. It's just, it gives me a lot of hope that our country has a shot and these men and women are actually going to do the work. I'm not religious anymore, but I did grow up Christian. And I know that Great Hearts is not a religious enterprise, but hearing, you know, the testimony of these kids, hearing them talk about 
the arts, about the pursuit of, of truth and, and beauty and goodness, hearing you talk about it, it reminds me of a saying that I used to hear when I was in church. As Christians, we were in the world, but not of the world. And granted, again, just to clarify for our listeners, you know, Great Hearts is not religious charter, but contrasting what the children are learning, what they're pursuing, what they're exploring in Great Hearts and contrasting that with society at large, I feel that. It feels like these kids are in the world, but not of it because of, of all the things that they're learning, because of all the ways that their education contrasts with the wider education in traditional schools. Is, is that something that you feel? I do. I like, I like that analogy, in the world, but not of it, because I think what needs to happen and what does happen at our schools is that they step out of the tyranny of the present you know, children, especially teenagers through social media, they're just pounded all the time. What's going on now? What's going on now? The urgency of the moment. And it's all about contemporary pressures and issues. But to really think about it in your own life, to really reflect, to really retreat to the point of thinking deeply and getting new perspective, they need to step out of the moment and think in a timeless way. And that's what we try to do at our schools. You know, we want them to have the objectivity of the permanent through these discussions, through math, science, the arts. And, you know, at first, it's kind of countercultural. At first, students kind of push back on it that are new into our schools, but they come to love it. And they actually start listening to one another instead of just looking down or itching their fingers for a screen. Then they start to become proud of being countercultural. And this place of reflection, they look forward to human letters. They actually relax. You know, part of just learning is the leisure of learning. Just, just chill, relax, get into the moment, look at each other. What's going on? Let's talk. As I said, the scandalous inefficiency of conversation. We need inefficient schools so they can be more efficient. <laughs> so stepping out of the present and, you know, the tyranny of the visible needs to be replaced by the permanence of ideas gets students beyond just the pressure of what they see because the unseen things are actually more lasting than the seen things that just end up in landfills. You know, we got to reset the paradigm for children. I mean, poll after poll shows that children today are more depressed than ever, are more anxious than ever. They possess more suicidal ideation. And my heart breaks for these kids because frankly, I can't blame them for feeling this way when they're constantly bombarded by alarmist headlines and news that says the world's going to end in 10 years or it's never been worse and you should be depressed because the world's going to hell in a handbasket, our media is incentivized. You know, it's like if it bleeds, it leads, you know, like there's not going to be news reporting that there was a wonderful picnic in the park and everyone got along great, even though that's what happens on a daily basis, right? There are tragedies in the world, but there is also so much good. And to your point, Dan, I'm making my way through Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. Wonderful. That guy's going places. He's an up-and-coming writer. <laughs> but reading it, this text that is, is thousands of years old, reading it and seeing myself in him, seeing that he is dealing with the same, you know, on a larger scale as an emperor, but he is struggling with these same internal feelings that we all struggle with. He is He is doubting himself. He is learning how to be a better man. He is fighting the friction within himself. I feel connected to history. And in that way, I am calmed about the events that are taking place now because I realize that all of us throughout history have struggled with the same things. And in a way, it, it doesn't make me less concerned about the things that do need to be changed, about the justice that does need to be sought in, in areas of the world that we have not yet perfected because we can never attain perfection, but we can always strive for it. To your point, Dan, it's like learning about history, about how all human beings have struggled with these same issues throughout all time, it can calm you. The waves of the now feel less tumultuous. And I wish there was a way that we could beam that into every child's brain because my heart, again, breaks for children who feel that the world has never been worse. And so they despair, you know? Yeah, I think it's true. You know, while I do think our culture is in crisis in some ways, kind of pushing back on myself, <laughs> You know, every generation, when you go back and read history, kind of thought the same thing, has always thought that there's kind of an apocalyptic thread 
that this is the end. You know, look at this injustice and sense of, of tyranny is destroying, you know, humanity. And so we've kind of always lived in that tension. And I think you're right. I think students that read philosophy, history, literature, get a sense of perspective. Hopefully informs them they can be leaders, be a more prudent, you know, not rush in at the wrong moment, but choose the right moments to lead with perspective instead of just a pure activist culture that shuts down the other. We want students who are courageous for noble things, but we want them to do it from a place of first principles and perspective. Dan, I've really enjoyed our time together today. You mentioned at the start of our conversation a follow-up one, which, you know, I'm going to hold you to that. I think it would be great to dive into this even deeper through a wider lens of appreciating the classics. Are there any books that you would recommend, either that you're reading now or that you just feel would be a good primer for people who are interested in learning more about this approach? Yeah, there's some essays that have been and books that have been pivotal to all of us classical educators. You know, there's that famous essay by Dorothy Sayers, The Lost Tools of Learning. I think it was written 60 years ago, but I think it really lays out the benefits of how a classical education works and how it fits into the modern world. Also a big fan of Robert Maynard Hutchins, The Western Tradition, The Great Conversation, some essays that he wrote as an introduction to the Encyclopedia Britannica overview, where he redemocratized the great books in the 50s. And then anything by Mortimer Adler, the Padea Program and the Padea Proposal are, are really good arguments, apologies for why all students and all human beings, especially including adults, should wrestle with these these great ideas, like Marcus Aurelius. Adler coined the phrase that's often used now, lifelong learning. If you stop learning, you start dying. And he says that one's education is not completed until death. <laughs> so, that's part of the problem is that so many adults have got off the learning train, have kind of squandered their curiosity into lesser forms of entertainment that we don't know what a good education looks like anymore. So I think we all need to discuss Marcus Aurelius, pick up a novel, join a great book seminar. They're all around the country. I think there's the Great Books Foundation, adult seminars. So things like that, we all need to plug back into this tradition, plug back into reading, plug back into reflection. And so I think, you know, it starts with ourselves, not just the public education system and school choice. Yes, yes, yes but let's find other ways to continue to grow intellectually ourselves. This podcast has come with many blessings over the years since I've started it, but I would say probably the biggest one is that I have the honor of speaking with such passionate folks as yourself, and I feel like I get to skim a little bit of that passion during our conversations because it really does light me up. I'll save just a single criticism of Great Hearts for the very end. When I read about these schools, you know, and I read the testimonies of the children learning there, of the plays and the poems, the literature, the art, the music. My critique is that, you know, I, I was just born 20 years too late because I would have absolutely loved attending a Great Heart School as a kid. And I am so excited about all the kids who are growing there and learning there. So thank you again, Dan, for your time today. And thank you for all the wonderful work you're doing for our kids. Well, Michael, thank you very much for this gracious conversation. I'm very grateful. Hey there. If you're hearing this, you're exactly the person this message is for. If you're a fan of the show, it would make my day if you could give it a five-star rating and write a brief one or two-sentence review on Apple Podcasts.